Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at a small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my source material. In this episode, I will be looking at uh, part of the middle part of The Old Regime in Canada by Francis Parkman Jr. This is the fourth book of, uh, well, The Old Regime in Canada is the fourth book in France and England and North America, his seven-volume Life's Work, tracing the history of the French Empire in, in North America. So I talked a bit about the overall arc of the book in the last episode and then focused on the, the first uh, sections of it, which dealt with the, the, the Acadian Civil War and then the, the efforts of the Jesuits to kind of reestablish missions in among the Iroquois um, after the failure of the Huron um, missions, which were detailed in volume two of the of this epic history, of this epic narrative literary history. Um, so I am um, going to look at roughly the middle section of this book in this episode, and it's going to cover a little bit of more religious history, um, which is something that Parkman's very, very interested in. He does kind of see the cross, especially the, the Roman church and the monarchy as the two crucial essential features of, of French Canada. And much of what this book does as the central volume is, is sort of lock in what these what these institutions meant in French Canada and what they meant for the the culture the the politics the, the the kind of the institutional foundations of French Canada and why they're not they weren't adequate for achieving a victorious uh, victory over England in the long term that that story will be the story of the last two volumes of the of of the history <clears throat> so I'm gonna pick up here uh, we're gonna, like, I didn't talk that much about a couple chapters here that, that deal with some other efforts among the Iroquois, some other conflicts with the Iroquois that the French had. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick up with chapter 7 called The Disputed Bishopric, 1657 to 1668, because it, it deals with two of the big uh, religious questions in later 17th century France and America, at least regard, regarding the Catholic Church. Um, and... And kind of lay that out and kind of get at what Parkman sees as the the, the, the heart there. And then I'm going to talk about the uh, Bishop Laval and then get into the final uh, part of the, the kind of the third section of this book, Old Regime in Canada, which gets into the politics a little bit more and the, the politics and the culture and the society in, in New France. So... Um, actually, I think there's three major divisions. I guess there's the Jans in it. Uh, controversy and the Jansenite conflict. There's the kind of Jesuit versus Sulpatian, um, and the kind of the Jesuit or the Roman Roman faction versus the Gallic Church faction. 
And really, when the question gets to establishing a formal bishopric in New France, which happened, um, of course, Laval is the first bishop of, of New France, and he becomes... Uh, when is, what date, what's the date there? Um, 1658 or so, I think, I think it's 1658, um, is when it's finally established and Laval is established as the first bishop. But there's all these conflicts, all these uh, tensions behind the scenes. And, and um, here's what Parkman writes about it. Uh, Canada grasping under the Iroquois tomahawk might, one have supposed thought, her cup of tribal, tri tribulation full and say to which inevitable woe have sought consolation from the wrath without a holy calm within. Not so, however, for while the heathen raged at the door, discords rioted at the hearthstone. Her domestic quarrels were wonderful in number, diversity, and bitterness. There was the standing quarrel of Montreal and Quebec, the quarrels of priests with each other, the priests with the governor, and of the governor with the intendant, besides ceaseless wrangling of rival traders and rival Peculators. Some of the disputes were local and of no special significance, while others are very interesting because in a remote and obscure theater, they represent something in striking forms and contending passions and principles of the most important epoch in history. To begin with, one, uh, to begin with one which has even to this day left a root of bitterness behind it. So, you know, Montreal is kind of established as a, as a religious colony almost in as opposed to the more secular Quebec. So that was kind of a tension where it would be the house of the bishopric. Um, but anyways, there's a lot of them. And one of the big ones is the Salpatians versus the, the Jesuit. And so who are these Salpatians? I mean, it's not a word in, in common lingo. Um, basically, this is a Parisian kind of order or a Parisian parish. It's named after St. Sulpice of Paris, which is the parish uh, that they come from. And the founder was this guy, Jean-Jacques Ollier. And basically, they educated people for the, the ministry. So they were kind of a competitor to the Jesuits, who were, of course, also edu uh, focused on education. So that tension kind of boils over into the, the Americas. And the Jesuits lose, and then the Sulpatians are trying to find their home. And th this is kind of going to be an ongoing question with the education system, and that's stuff I'll get to, I think, in the next in the next episode when I finish up this this book, The Old Regime in Canada, because education and the education in New France, the religious education, is going to be a key part of the story looking at the institutional foundations of, of New France. Um, another conflict, of course, is between the Jansenites and the Jesuits. Um, so the Jansenites... They're described here a little bit as mystics, but I think there's kind of a mystical aspect to the Jesuits too in their study and their spiritual exercises. So I don't like calling them like the mystics versus the more scholastic uh, Jesuit. Um, but nevertheless, that's what kind of how Parkman sees it. But essentially the Jansenites were uh, Catholics who, who f still believed in the Catholic institution and the Pope and the, the priests and the hierarchy and all that kind of stuff, but allowed or embrace, I should say, embrace various almost Calvinist ideas. And it's not really clear to me in what I've kind of researched about the, the Jansenites or what Parkman says, whether they like read Calvin and said, oh, I, I agree, or read the Protestants and I agree, or that these are just ideas that were always sort of there in Catholicism and kind of emerged. And before the, the Reformation, they would have been more, that's my guess here, is that these are ideas that are always kind of floating around. I think in a way, even like, like Luther wasn't that original, 
um, in all of his ideas. And I'm not sure how original Calvin was. I mean, these ideas are in Augustine, of course, about like the focus on sin, or total depravity. That that's in Augustine, which of course he's central to Catholic theology. So, and I'm not a theologian. I'm I'm not an expert on this. I'm just I'm just guessing these tensions were there before, right? You know, whether it's Erasmus and Origen and Augustine and these different trends. I, I think Erasmus was more Augustinian, right? And then Origen, you know, I kind of forgot some of this stuff, to, my, to be honest. If anyone can fill in the details on this, I, I would appreciate it. But anyways, my guess is that these, these ideas that did focus on depravity and sin and, and the the power of kind of passive prayer, you know, we're always there in Catholicism and they just emerge from time to time. But in the context of the Reformation, these were apparently too close to Calvin for the comfort of groups like the Jesuits. So that's going to be another tension, especially when you have this new world environment. The Americas is a marchland of Europe where radical ideas, alternative ideas can take root and thrive. Maybe in France, they can't. They really... It's, it's not fertile soil for heretical ideas, especially in the 17th century. But in the New World, I mean, they, maybe they can. I mean, certainly that's the case with the British colonies and Puritanism. Uh, with, uh, you saw that with the Huguenots in Florida. In the very first episode of this series, I talked about the Huguenots in Florida, and there was a chance to establish kind of a different institutional, religious, theological foundation in, a, in the New World, even though the Huguenots didn't have much chance of, of being victorious in France itself. So um, that's another tension, religious tension here. And the third major tension that's talked about here, and that's another one that's kind of running through the whole history of this era at large, is the tension between those who, who want to maintain a hierarchical church centered in Rome and those who are on the side of absolutism, Louis XIV, and want what was called like a Gallic church, meaning a, a church that's, that's maybe not under the king, but the bishops, the priests are, are appointed with the consent of the king, right? Not, not against it. This kind of goes back to the old investiture, investiture crisis from the Middle Ages, if you remember, where there was this big debate whether who can, who can appoint bishops, the, the pope or the king. Or the, or the emperor, and of course the emperor loses that debate. But you know, Ed, you know, the the French were able to work out a deal where they were able to you know appoint bishops, and then the pope would go along with the, with that. So I, they kind of worked out the optics of it to be accessible both sides. But there was a degree of independence of the French church, and that's the Gallic and the Jesuits also are kind of on the other side of that of that debate. So. Uh, Here's uh, how he writes about it. Two great parties divided the Catholics of France, the Galatian or National Party and the Ultramontane or Papal Party. The first resting on the spiritual injunction to give tribute to Caesar held that the king, the Lord's appointed, uh, anointed belonged the temporal and the church, the spiritual power. It also held that the laws, customs of the church in France could not be broken at the bidding of the Pope. The Ultramontane Party, on the other hand, maintained that the Pope, Christ's, vicegerent vice on earth was supreme over earthly rulers and should hold the right jurisdiction over the clergy of all Christendom with powers of appointment or removal. Hence, they claimed for him the right of nominating bishops in France. This had anciently been exercised by assemblies of the 
French clergy, but in the reign of Francis I, the king and the pope combined to wrest it from them by the Concordat of Bologna. Under this compact, which was still in force, the pope appointed French bishops on the nomination of the king, a plan which displeased the Galatians, but did not satisfy the Ultramontanes. The Jesuits, then as now, are the most forceful exponents of the Ultramontane principles. Um, and then we got to consider the power of the Jesuits in America over other factions um, compared to France itself, where you may have had the stronger Galatian faction. So these tensions are, are, are there, and they don't go away, really. There's no clear victor, except maybe the, the Sulpicians, the Sulpatian uh, faction is sort of defeated, but they're still going to be there as educators and as important clergy people. So Laval, when he becomes bishop, 1658, 1659, one of those two dates, is going to have to be is going to have to navigate these things. And he's also going to have to navigate secular authority in New France. So much of the central part of this book is a series of chapters uh, dealing with Laval's relationships with various governors over time. Because Laval would remain bishop until, until the end of his life, pretty much. Um, you know, from 1658 to... to uh, well, until his retirement, anyways, in 1688, uh, he'd remain in New France, but he he sort of retires in 16 1688. Oh, according to Wikipedia here, he's been venerated, uh, beatified by Pope John Paul II, um, and equipolent canonization by Pope Francis in 2014. Um, whatever. Didn't know that about him. Doesn't really matter. Um, okay, so he, he was quite a young man when he becomes bishop, too. He was, only, he was less than 40 when he becomes bishop. So he's kind of in a position to have a long reign at a time when there was kind of this revolving door of governors in, in Quebec, which, of course, enhances the power of a person like Laval. So the first of these chapters that does it is called Laval and Argenson. Argenson was essentially governor of New France from for about three years till 1661. And here there's a major conflict between the bishop and the governor, like the representative of, of kind of papal authority and the representative of, of secular authority in New France, you know, over things like etiquette and like who defers to who in social situations. And apparently these memorials were actually written to the king trying to work this out in, in detail because it seemed to be a big issue. Quote, hence it was not surprising to find a memorial drawn up apparently by Argenson and addressed to the Council of State asking for instructions when and how a governor, lieutenant general for the king, ought to receive incense, holy water, and consecrated bread, whether the said bread should be offered with the sound of drum and fife, who should be in the position in the seat of the church, what place should he hold in various religious ceremonies, whether in feasts, assemblies, ceremonies, and councils of a purely civil character, he or the bishop was to hold first place, and finally, if the bishop could excommunicate the inhabitants or others for acts of a civil and political character, when the said acts were pronounced lawful by the governor. So that kind of sums up what some of these disputes uh, were. And that's the feeling in, in most of these chapters is, is various... Uh, conflicts. Another big one was temperance. Uh, that's going to come up a lot in the second half of this book. The issue of temperance, whether it's temperance among the people of, of New France. Uh, the church was for it, but many other people were more indifferent to it or 
you know, at least accepting of the benefits of, of alcohol as a commodity, especially with Indians. I mean, temperance among the Indians is even a bigger issue because so many people, their bread and butter, bread and, uh, bread and butter were selling brandy to the Indians, which the missionaries and the church thought was a sin, right? And the, ch- the government itself made a lot of money selling brandy to, to them. So there was at one point, I forget where exactly it is, but there was one point where the private trading of brandy was banned really because for these religious moral reasons, but the, the government continued to sell brandy to, to the Indians because it was a major source of revenue for, the, for New France. So these kind of contradictions get exposed by the, you know, by the conflict between Laval and the secular authorities. Uh, same thing once again with uh, the issue of the legal system and the question of capital punishment and the question of, of who's in charge of the legal system. All these stuff were still being worked out on a highly conflicted and highly debated uh, basis. But Laval is going to be very, very key in establishing the, these sort of institutions of New France. So what Laval really wanted, um, according to Parkman here, and he lays this out in the final chapter of this section called the vault in the seminary, which of course deals with the educational institutions that get established. Um, and somewhere that Laval seemed to really thrive because he was kind of a traditionalist, a disciplinarian, someone who, who kind of thrived in that kind of environment of establishing a new seminary. Um, but ultimately what he wanted was the submission of secular authority in New France to that of the Pope and the church and specifically in the local situation to him. Uh, he even in a sermon says, the supremacy and infallibility of the Pope, the independence and liberty of the church, the subordination and submission of the state to the church in case of conflict between them, the church to decide the state to submit. For whoever follows and defends these principles, life and a blessing, and whoever rejects and combats them, death and a curse. Um, so this is the position of Laval, it's the position of the Jesuits, that essentially uh, Canada is to be driven by religious authority. Um, and if anything, secular authority should be the sword by which the church uh, will fight its battles. Um, now that is going to, of course, be in tension with the other major thread of New France, which is going to be the growing power of, of absolutism. And that is what Parkman picks up in the third and final section of, of this book, uh, The Old Regime in Canada, called The Colony and the King. King. And he actually says that this was the section that he was thinking of when he wrote the title of the whole book. So he kind of sees that, you know, he sees the story of Acadia, the story of Laval, as, as kind of secondary to the big story he wants to tell here, which is of literally the monarchy in New France. And what we kind of get over the course of 10, 12, 13 chapters is, is the story of royal intervention in the workings of New France and the, the, greater, the growing power of the monarchy over all the happenings in New France, whether it's, it's issues of trade, issues of education, issues of the seminary, issues of, of um, you know, power and authority in, in the terms of like who owns land and who has royal titles, who is a gentleman, uh, class issues, 
gender issues even, who's going to be in charge? And the idea here, as Parkman unveils, is really a transition from kind of feudalism, where the church has a lot of authority or is kind of the most powerful force in the mix of a lot of different feudal lords, to uh, transitioning to what he calls Canadian absolutism by by the 18th century. So that's the story here is one of the rising power of the of of the of the king uh, of the absolutist monarchy in in Canada. And he uh, and so let's yeah, let's begin talking about this. Where does this royal intervention come from? What's the foundation for it? How is it able to root itself in New France, especially in the context of a very very powerful bishop like Laval who has a very very different vision of what New France should be. Well, the the first question really comes up is like, you know, will this be like an independent trading company? And that was one path. That's the path, of course, many British colonies took, where basically like in Massachusetts, they were established as a trading company and they took their charter with them. So there weren't like investors back in London who could basically make decisions for them way in Virginia. That was what happened there. But in either case, there were, there were sort of private merchant companies and really driven by the needs of those companies. Not, and it was only later that the crown was able to establish clear control over them. Um, that period of maybe more independent like merchant leadership was atrophied or much weaker or much shorter in New France. Um, and instead you get a very, very clear investment by the church or by the monarchy in New France, direct investment, which ensures that that it will be under the the king. The way he writes it um, is this is the chapter called Royal Intervention. There was good cause. Canada, it was plain, was not to be wholly abandoned to a trading company. Louis XIV was resolved that new France should be added to the old. Soldiers, settlers, horses, sheep, cattle, young women for wives were all sent out in abundance by his paternal benignity. Before the season was over, about 2,000 persons had landed in Quebec at the royal charge. So even settlement is, is directed and planned and organized by the crown for the crown's purposes in, in New France. So this takes away any kind of independence that might be there. And I, and I think that gets to the heart of Parkman's argument here, is what is, is kind of handcuffing New France from really being a power in the new continent, the way Britain, you know, the way British North America would become, had a lot to do with the fact that they were kind of bound to either Rome, to the Jesuit order, or to, uh, or to Louis the Fourteenth, or to the monarch, eventually the monarchy more broadly. But you know, Louis the Fourteenth is really, really important here because he has this very, very grand vision of what the monarchy should mean in France. You know, I am the state, right? Alleged to have said, we don't. I guess it's not clear he really said it, but allegedly he said, I am the state. And of course, historians to this day use that as a as a tool when talking about Louis the Fourteenth because it's so succinct and it explains so much what he had in his mind that all political power would be disinvested from the nobility, from the church, and put in the, in the person of the, of, of the king. Now, with, with that established as kind of being the crown's goals, there's still the process. It's going to take decades for, that to, to, for, for Canadian absolutism to fully be established. Um, now, chapter 14 is called The Mohawks Chastened, and this is the story largely of Tracy's expedition uh, to subdue the Mohawks and create peace um, 
which had been kind of they didn't there was not peace between France and the Iroquois prior to this, but it kind of establishes this uh, a long-standing peace between between uh, New France and the Iroquois, something that that many people wanted, especially the Jesuits had, had wanted because they were still trying to establish missions there. Now, uh, this is Wikipedia about Tracy, uh, Marquis Alexandre de Pouvol de Tracy. Uh, that's his, his full name, so just Tracy. He was governor, lieutenant general of New France for a few years, and he's most known for this attack against the Iroquois. Um, quote, after this is Wikipedia, after defeating them and destroying their crops and villages, he launched an attack against the Mohawk Nation, caused their destruction to their territory in central present-day New York. Uh, Tracy seized all the Mohawk lands in the name of the King of France. He forced the Mohawk to accept the Roman Catholic faith and to adopt the French language as taught by Jesuit missionaries. A uh, mission village was set up, and then he died in 16, 1670. So this is um, part of the story that he includes, but it's not really as key to this overall social history that, that Parkman starts to get into, especially starting in chapter 15. Um, so he kind of gets back to this story with chapter 15 called pater um, Paternal Government. And the way he kind of, and here the, the figure of Talon is, is key. Um, quote, Tracy's work was done and he left Canada with the glittering noblesse on his train. Uh, Corcel and Talon remained to rule alone, and now the great experiment was begun. Paternal royalty would try its hand in building up the colony, and Talon was its chosen agent. His appearance did not just did him no justice. The regular contour of his oil, oval face, about which fell to his shoulders a cataract of curls natural or um, supposititious, the smooth lines of his well-formed features, brows delicately arched, and a mouth more suggestive of feminine sensibility than masculine force would certainly have misled the disciple of Lavatur. Yet there was no want of manhood in him. He was most happily chosen to the task placed before his hands. From the first to the last, he proved himself a vigorous executive officer. He was a true disciple of Colbert, formed in his schools and, and animated by his spirit. So this is 1665. This is kind of the beginning of this really, really intensive effort to, to uh, subject New France, to subject Canada to, to the authority of the king, right? To create a paternal government, right? So what did this mean? Well, it meant disciplining trade. It meant uh, strengthening the governor as an agent of the king. It meant, you know, regulating things like drink. That was a major concern. Temperance is a, is a big issue, or what the, the English call temperance. I, I think that's the words that Park, uh, Parkman uses from time to time. But, you know, the issue of drink is very, very crucial here. Um, you, know, you know, there was kind of economic motivations for selling brandy, selling wine, selling alcohol to the Indians, to the settlers. But it was seen as a lack of discipline and something that had to be wiped out. Um, so there's various areas in which you see this growing authority of the, of the, of the king. And it's quite an ambitious goal. And we're told it's, it's kind of partially out of the mind of Colbert, which I think is, is key because Colbert is kind of the, the point man in Paris, I guess, for the, for the colonies uh, under, under the king. Now, a big issue, and this is described in chapter 16, a big issue for settlements was the lack of women. Um, and, and so with the peopling of New France being kind of taken up by the king, then the question is like, 
you're going to have to not just have priests and traders and, and, and male farmers. You're going to need wives for these people, right? Um, you know, this to, to kind of deal with the gender disparity among the population of New France. I think at the time, this is true in Virginia to a certain degree as well, especially after Bacon's Rebellion. This idea that kind of women, wives, especially English or French wives in this case, kind of form a stabilizing force in society, right? There was a lot of, of course, the biggest reaction to Bacon's Rebellion in Virginia was the establishment of a stronger slave society and growing gaps between blacks and whites, really key to the establishment of race in British North America. But as other historians have pointed out, there was also this drive to kind of import more women, uh, export, emigrate, whatever the right word is, bring more women to Virginia to be wives for these these men, which would be, it was seen as kind of, it would stabilize their lives. It would make them more well-behaved, right? So the question here is, how do you get these wives? Um, quote, but if the colony were to grow from within and the new settlers must have wives. For some years past, the Sulpatians had sent out young women for a supply of Montreal. And the king, on a larger scale, continued the benevolent work. Girls for the colony were taken from the hospitals of Paris and from Lyon, which were not so much hospitals for the sick as houses for the refuge for the poor. Mother Mary writes in 1665 that a hundred had come that summer and nearly all provided with husbands, and that 200 more were to come the next year. The case was urgent, for the demand was great. Complaints, however, were soon heard that women from cities made indifferent partners, and peasant girls healthy, strong, and accustomed to field work were demanded in their place. End quote. That, that's kind of an interesting little gender uh, vignette there. Like that city girls, these poor city girls were a little bit too independent, right? For reasons we can guess um, about their pasts. Maybe sexually freer. Maybe that's the code word here. So the, they wanted peasant women would be more well-behaved or whatever. So um, a really interesting aspect of gender history. And I'm sure women have, or I'm sure historians have looked at the, the history of women in New France. So we can defer to their more recent scholarship on this very, very interesting question. Um, but there's a whole chapter here on marriage and population and the, the efforts to encourage emigration, but particularly emigration of, of, of women. And I think that that can be it. So, um, you know, we're kind of in the section of the book where the last hundred pages or so are just going to kind of plow through and continue telling the story of the growing power of the state and the monarchy over New France through things like education, temperance, uh, regulating migration, establishing rulers, establishing the kind of the nobility of New France, uh, regulating trade. Um, and then eventually we get a greater conflict with the religious authority when we start getting to questions of, of manners, of morality, uh, and the power of the, of the church. So I'm going to save all that for the final episode in my, in my look at at the old regime in Canada. That'll be the next episode. Um, and um, yeah, that's going to be it for now. So if you have any thoughts about the question about Laval, about some of these early governors, about the absolutism and what it meant for Canada, um, leave your thoughts below as a comment or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, I would appreciate it. So that will be it for now. I'll see you next time when I finish up my thoughts on the whole regime.